I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This week, I want to do something like a tribute, um, but it won't be corny, but something like a tribute to um, a professor that made an impact on my life. And the professor's name is J. Herman Blake. Okay, so um, this week, the hubby and I are celebrating our um, wedding anniversary. And we are also going on a trip. Um, Not just for the wedding anniversary and and, um, to celebrate that, but also to see family. Um, uh, We visited my family back in July. And so we were going to kind of do a two for one you know, celebrate our wedding anniversary and then go see his people, um, this month. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, and his people live in South Carolina, um, specifically sort of like central South Carolina, but you know, they have roots all over the place, um, in the state. And then of course, like all black folks, you know, the kinfolk have moved here, there and everywhere across the country. Um, so anyway, but, so we're going to go see the folks that are still there. Um, and hang out with them, obviously go to the beach because duh. Um, I don't know if we're going to spend any time in Charleston because I don't know. It just seems like the last time, um, we went there because I'm a planner when it comes to trips, (laughs) key key word, when it comes to trips or key phrase. Anyway, um, I'm a planner. And so I picked out all the cool things to do, like black history, supporting black uh, businesses um, and things like that. Even aspects of the the Geechee culture Um, in Charleston. We kind of did that the last time we went there. Um, And so I don't know if we're going to go back there again. Maybe we'll see some of that stuff. But then also um, one of my coworkers told me that there's this this thing called eco tours where you can leave from an island one of the sea islands and kind of see the dolphins um and at the time it sounded really great and it still sounds really great but it just reminded me of something that i learned i started to learn i think um the podcast uncivil uh reminded me of what my old professor, uh, Dr. Herman J. Blake had shared with me in college, um, or shared with uh, this little cohort of students, a small little group of students, um, who we got close to him. And anyway, which was the sea islands are like really prime real estate, um, for vacation homes. And while vacation homes have existed on the coast of the Carolinas, specifically South Carolina and Georgia, um, forever, um, it's only in the last 20 or 30 years that developers read capitalist um, enterprising people have seen the sea islands as even better vacation real estate. Um even though they are vulnerable to hurricanes and, and sea tempests and stuff like that. Anyhow, um, and you know, I don't know that you know this for certain, but like, let's just go with me. The sea islands were inhabited by black people. Before black people per se, they were inhabited by um, indigenous uh, First Nations people. 
And so I'm sure there was a time in overlap, especially when um, white folks were colonizing the um, the Americas, specifically um, the shores of, you know, Virginia, the Carolinas and Georgia, even Florida. Um, of course, there were indigenous people there um, and there were black folk there, too. And I think definitely do your research on this because it's kind of my research is getting muddled these days. Um, things that I've read versus things that have been imagined or implied. But for the most part, black folks were they set root on the sea islands. And real quick, I just want to I know I'm all over the place, but go with me. So the sea islands are literally a chain of islands and they're literally called sea islands. You can you can Google them. Sea, new word, islands. Um, and they, the chain starts like, I don't know, just just at the uh, border between North Carolina and South Carolina and then comes all the way down just past the border between Georgia and Florida. Um, and, you know, there, there are a ton of beaches there, a ton of, ton of islands who I can't name. Um, some are more populated than others. Um, thankfully some still very much have, um, descendants of folks who have been there for generations. Um, you remember the film Daughters of the Dust? Daughters of the Dust was set on a sea island. Um, I think it was off the coast of Georgia. Don't quote me. But anyway, it was set in the Sea Islands at the turn of the century. And, you know, it was talking about the black migration. And again, just like every other southern state, the great migration um, of black folk leaving for better opportunity, either going north to New York or even beyond to Canada or across the country to like, you know, the industrial towns in like St. Louis, Kansas City, Chicago, you know, even Cleveland, to a certain extent, that was far enough um, west for some folk. Do you know what I mean? So folks kept going. Obviously, a lot of us landed in uh, Louisiana, not Louisiana, but L.A. Um, and I talk about this in one of my episodes. So I can't remember what it's called. But anyway, um, it's one of the October, November ones of last year. Uh, season one episodes. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so I talk, I talk about that. Uh, I talk about it specifically as it relates to, I talk about it in the, um, the African-American folklore series. So go listen to that if you want to know more about um, my thoughts on the Great Migration and how it impacted my family and things like that. Um, and certainly the Out of Africa series too. It's in there as well. Anyway, so the Sea Islands were no different. And again, the Daughters of the Dust film um, illustrates that the family was on the precipice of making that decision to stay or to go. And many were deciding that they were going to go. And I believe some of them, I believe the place they were going to go was Chicago. Um, for the same promise of wealth and opportunity, maybe not wealth, but definitely prosperity and opportunity that the, uh, farm owners, the former uh, slave owners had enticed um, black folks to come back to these plantations as sharecroppers, you know, promising them, oh my goodness, the corn you gonna grow here is gonna be so big, the cattle gonna be bigger than you've ever seen before. Um, and all you gotta do is just do this little work for me, you know what I mean? Clear our field and you can have this patch of land for yourself and you gonna live good, you gonna eat well, you know what I mean? Same sort of promise, you know, how it happened that our people went to these major urban cities expecting jobs, which many of them they did get. <clears throat> they, you got, they got jobs, they bought on their own homes, 
Detroit, Kansas City, St. Louis, uh, L.A., even parts of Texas, I would say. Anyway, um, a lot of these major urban cities, we saw this growth of black communities and they were prospering. And then, of course, you know, the bottom drops out in the 60s because we just can't ever have peace and prosperity um, because somebody's always trying to take it from us. But that's neither here nor there. Another conversation. Anyhow, but what am I saying? I'm saying that despite great migration, despite um, the exodus, the mass exodus of black folks who were just read to go, um, there were there's still a huge community of black folks who still exist in the sea islands and they haven't been put out by the redevelopers. They haven't been put out by folks who want to turn a quick buck and try to, as the episode on Uncivil and, and Google that podcast, cause it's really great. Uncivil shared that because a lot of these black folk couldn't put their hand on a deed that said, my people have owned this land for such and such a time that a lot of these redevelopers would, or, you know, a lot of these folks that were snatching land would just take them to court and say, well, you can't prove that this is your land. And so as far as I'm concerned, these this is owned by the state and we snatching it because we want it and we've got the coin to pay for it. And so a lot of homes were snatched because folks couldn't prove uh, that the land belonged to their people and had been had belonged to the people for so many generations. Anyway, but there's still some folks that are around, which is a really great thing. Um, and so I think in large part, just to put a spotlight on the land there and to preserve the wildlife uh, that's there and the way of life that's there, an organization, a organization called the Sea Island Institute, um, which is based out of Georgia, exists um, for that and many more reasons. There's lots of research that's done. Of course, there are fellowships that are offered through there. And anyway, circling back around to the professor that I mentioned, um, for a time there, and I think even until now, um, J. Herman Blake is either a fellow, um, visiting fellow there, or is some sort of bigwig, um, someone that the Institute or Sea Island Institutes, especially cultural preservation organizations look to. And um, I think he has membership in these um, and he supports. Um, and yeah, and, and the reason why I thought about J. Herman Blake is because I'm going to South Carolina and I instantly thought of the Sea Islands. And I started thinking about all the memories that I had with J. Herman Blake at school and how after I graduated college and, and Dr. J. Herman Blake had been long moved on from that university, um, at my first internship, I knew somebody that knew him. I ran into someone who knew him, which blew my mind because I'm like, how in the world do you know this person? And I'm halfway across the country now seeing you for the first time. How do you know? How do we have this person in common? Anyway, it just blew my mind. And so I started to think about that. And then I started to do research because, you know, when Jeremy Blake was um, at my university, Jeremy Blake was older. It, I, he was at least in his 60s. And that was a minute ago. So 
you know, time passes and health fades and things like that. So, you know, I'm looking up his name. This man is still doing what he's always done, which is making a mark and influencing the community. Um, and as far as I know, he's still spending a lot of time. I think he lives and works in um, Georgia on one of those sea islands, St. Saint Helena, one of those sea islands um, in Georgia. Man's 84 years old. I think about to be 85. Um, so bless him. But anyway, so today I just, I don't want to be corny, but I am going to be reflective of the time spent there. Uh, time spent under his tutelage, but more so just talking about the work that he has done um, and just how interesting I found him to be and how specifically Dr. J. Herman Blake allowed me to find out who I really was. And I know that sounds corny and I'll tell you all about it, but for real, because I went through some changes. I don't know about you, you know, when you left high school and if you didn't go to college, I don't know what your early 20s were like, but they were way different than my late teens. And they were certainly different than my late 20s and now my 30s. Um, well, now I'm in my mid 30s anyway. Um, but that period, sitting at his feet, learning and growing for the short time that we uh, that I was able to spend in his in in his presence um, really shaped who I am today um, in many ways. Wasn't the only thing that shaped me, certainly, excuse me, but helped shape me in many different ways. And so I just want to talk about that. So just bear with me. It's I, I will tell stories. It will be entertaining, but it will be a little corny, too. So J. Herman Blake was born in 1934 in Mount Vernon, New York, um, and was raised by a single mother, one of seven children. And I remember, you know, in school, uh, Dr. Blake sharing all of these stories about his um, how he grew up and how, what it was like. You can imagine a single mother um, who did domestic work um, with seven kids. It got a little got a little rough, especially in, in New York, um, got a little, got a little rough. So, um, there is a, so he told us a bunch of stories, but then there are also recordings of him that you could Google online right now, like literally Google Dr. J. Herman Blake. And there's a story core, uh, episode that he did. It's like less than three minutes long, but he did it with one of his brothers. Um, and it is, immortalized forever that 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 little snippet of his life um he and his family's life is immortalized they were actually paying tribute to someone who helped his mom um a woman that was like a neighbor or something that helped his mom um look after these seven kids while she was at work um and anyway it's a cute little story but it, it, the story itself kind of embodies who J. Herman Blake is I, th if you are black, <laughs> specifically you're a uh, black American, I, I don't know this to be true across the diaspora, but maybe it is. It's just in my experience, if you are black, um, there is this emphasis put on education, educational attainment. 
um, especially from extreme circumstances. But even if you're not coming from an extreme, like a poverty circumstance or abuse or neglect or something like that, there's this huge emphasis put on educational attainment as a, sig- as a signal that you've made it through your adversity. You've made it through. And what we know is just because you've been able to achieve academically and you experience success academically does not mean that emotionally you have healed from that trauma. You've healed from any weirdness that you might have had to go through um, during that very low period in your life. And, And again, sometimes it didn't always have to be a low period. It's just. In a lot of our families, we've put a huge amount of pressure and basically the bar is if you've achieved this educational degree and this title at your job, then you've made it. And making it means you're making, you have the money, you've got the coins, you, you can now have the car and the house and things like that. But none of those bars have anything to do with your emotional growth or you as a person. It has everything to do with what you've acquired and it and the physical things that you've acquired and even knowledge to a certain extent. It's a physical thing because you get a piece of paper signifying that you've achieved this goal. Right. So in his story, there's definitely this whole thing. And even in the story that he tells at StoryCorps with his brother, um, I think it's from 2013, 2013, 2014. Anyway, um, you know, they say he makes a point of saying, you know, of the seven siblings, everybody graduated high school and, you know, four of them got postdoc degrees and or or masters and and then two got a postdoc or what have you. Um and that's educational attainment has its place, but to me that's not the thing that's amazing. That's not the thing that is just it it has its place. Don't get me wrong and I'm not trying to poo-poo on that achievement. First off, all of them had to find the money to get to school in the first place, which even today, you know, even back then, what, when, when would he have been going to school? Maybe the 50s, 50s, 60s? Yeah, 50s, something like that. You, She wasn't making any money to do that. There wasn't a village big enough in the world to send seven kids to, to college. Um, but... Many of them made it to college and many of them achieved long beyond just the four-year bachelor degree, um, which is a, a feat of its own. And Dr. Blake specifically, he was able to go to college and then pursue his academic studies and then kind of launch the career that he's still enjoying today because of his military service. He enrolls in the military, enlisted in the military. You don't enroll, you enlist in the military. Um, and then he'd served his term and then he received the GI Bill. And I don't know how that works. Um, I probably should have done my research on that. But anyway, he received the GI Bill. And then using that GI Bill, he was able to go to school. And so he got his bachelor's degree in, I think, like sociology or something like that. And long story short, he kept, you know, stayed in the academic world and found himself being one of the founding, the founding uh, provost for Oaks College at University of uh, USC, University of Southern California, Berkeley, USC, anyway, USC, Berkeley, no, Santa Cruz, University of California, Santa Cruz, none of the other stuff that I just said, just ignore it. University of California, Santa Cruz, that's where um, he was the very first provost for Oaks College at that university. 
Um, and anyway, so he spent a lot of time there. Now, why am I talking about how he moved from New York to um, California? Well, why that is significant is in that time, now we're moving into the 60s and he's in the midst of the Black Power Movement. And who should he rub shoulders with? But, you know, I, I believe he might have rubbed shoulders with um, Martin Luther King. I'm not 100 um, percent. Him being in the Christian faith himself. I'm not sure that their shoulders rub, but he definitely rubbed shoulders with Malcolm X. And he definitely interviewed Malcolm X extensively. And that is an archived video that you can find online by just Googling it. Um, at the time, I don't know that he was Dr. J. Herman Blake, but I think it was. J. Herman Blake and Malcolm X interview. And I think it's in the Library of Con Congress, actually. But yeah, so he knew Malcolm X. Um, he also knew Huey P. Newton. And he actually researched him to write his autobiography, which was Revolutionary Suicide, which, fun fact, when I read Univers uh, um, Revolutionary Suicide in college, even when... Dr. Blake in my presence, I didn't realize that he was the J. Herman Blake that wrote it. I don't know. I'm, I'm dense sometimes. It just is what it is. I don't think too much, think too deeply about some things. I just kind of roll with it sometimes to a fault. Anyway, and that was one of the weirdest situations. One of my, one of my um, friends, she had to tell me, that's Dr. Blake. J. Herman, J. Herman Blake, that's Dr. Blake. Anyway, <laughs> um, but I read that and, you know, if you've read it, you feel how you feel about it. But I just think it was I, I think it was cool that I had an opportunity to sit and learn from a person who had come from humble beginnings and then had experienced so much and had with so many different people. Um, and the list goes on. But those are the two notable people that I um remembered being enamored with in college because I was in an interesting place in my life in college. And so, you know, I was reading Revolutionary Suicide, not because, again, I didn't read that because J. Herman Blake, my professor, had written it. I was reading it because I was really trying to figure out what it meant to be black, what my black identity was, what my blackness looked like. And I didn't necessarily have the language to put what I was doing in those terms, but that's exactly what I was doing. Um, as I've shared on many episodes before, I grew up in a predominantly white um, community in Missouri. We had moved away um, from Kansas City and we moved into this farming community. And I was one of like five or six black faces in my whole school, you know, but my whole grade. Um, anyway... And so I don't know if I've ever shared this story, but like my school principal, who I do appreciate, but his way of helping me to feel connected to my community, my black community, um, and to learn more about myself in high school was to send me to this conference for little black kids about it was basically a black conference for black kids. And it was in Missouri, and I don't know if this sort of conference for high school kids exist, it existed anywhere else in the country, but no shade, I literally was selected to be the black kid among the few black kids at my school to go to this black kid conference. And it wasn't bad. The conference itself, I, I didn't feel like 
it was a conference full of black kids who were the token black kids in their high schools. I didn't I didn't think that deeply. Again, sometimes like life is just better for me if I'm not thinking too deeply about a thing because I'll just get lost in thought and I'll get angry and it'll it'll be counterproductive. So sometimes I just I just roll with it because it's easier. Um, and so I just went, I went with it. It was a day out of school. It was free travel. It was free food. They put me up. I think they put me up in a hotel. I can't call it. I think it was like a weekend thing, but I definitely didn't go to school on Friday. Um, anyway, and I got to pick up a lot of different books and, and things like that. So that was the beginning of me trying to figure out my blackness because I realized that I was a token. I knew it at that point in high school. I was old enough to realize, girl, you've been a token this whole time. You are the black friend, not a friend that happens to be black. You are the black, the black friend. And I started looking over my life, having come back from that conference and realized all the different ways that I was othered or all the different ways that I was kind of prodded to perform blackness. And so going to college, I was like, I'm done with that. My blackness is this. And so I went very militant. I had one or two white friends. I went from having majority white friends to like one or two, a handful, not even a handful, one or two. And to be honest with you, I didn't speak to them in public. I spoke to them in class. I did not speak to them across the yard. I did not speak to them in the lunchroom. Um, Nope, I didn't do it. And it was because I didn't, I wanted to be perceived as this person that was all about black people. And I know I'm not by myself in doing this. I know I'm not. But that was how, that was my reaction to just feeling like I was robbed in some way. Like, was I mad at my parents for moving me to this community? Ah, Maybe. Yeah, I was. I was. I don't, I don't know who I'm kidding. I was mad. I love my parents very much. I appreciated the solitude. I'm, you know, we moved away from Kansas City. I appreciated the quietness. I appreciated the tranquility. But I hated the fact that I was now the token. Um, and I don't know how about my... Um, my brother and sister who lived with us, I don't... And I have several, but that's another conversation for another day. Anyway, um... I don't know how they felt, but I know how I felt. And it was, gar- I felt once I was aware and that the awareness really hit me in, in high school because I started to think about the future and what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. And anyway, so once that awareness hit me, I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So when I got to college, I was like, I'm doing all things black. I'm absorbing all things black because I feel like I've been deprived and I just need to absorb. And so enter J. Herman Blake. He was my very first professor at school, I entered this program called the George Washington Carver program. I don't even know if it exists anymore. I don't know if I said this, but I don't care. I share, I'll share it now. I went to Iowa State University. Um, and that Carver program was for um, students of color um, to help them get acclimated to the campus. I think it was Iowa State's attempt to give black kids and, and, and people, kids of color a leg up. Um, because what we know is, especially black kids on PWIs, their retention rate is low, especially if they're first time college students, um, or first generation college students. And while I wasn't necessarily a first generation college student, there certainly was at least a generation between me that didn't 
go to college because work was just too good. They were getting those big dollars, those coins working for the state without having a college degree. And so that's what they did. Certainly that's what my mom did. She worked for the state. She worked, I think, the city making big coin without a college degree because she could. And so anyway, there was this there was this feeling that, oh, you could go to college if you want to, but you got to do something. You know what I mean? You can't stay here. You got to do something. And if college is the thing, then sure. So anyway, I think Iowa State's answer to helping kids of color stay in, in school is the Carver program. And so I was selected to be a part of the Carver program. And there must have been 40 of us from different parts of the country coming from all different backgrounds, all communities of color, all identified as being part of a community of color. Um, And so, yeah, that's how, if you listen to last episode, that's how I met Linda Ho. Linda Ho was a part of the Carver program. And, um, And we talked about colorism and all that stuff. So anyway, we talked about colorism and things because, again, I was a, I was, figuring out my blackness I was you know I was I was doing it I'll talk about what I think about that time frame now but anyway I was doing what I thought it was anyhow so I meet Jeremy Blake and he starts to expand my mind and I'm coming from just generally speaking even though there was a generation before me that was like you could go to college or you could just work and have this real good job there was still this respectability about air about our family um it's about your title oh how much you making okay what kind of car do you drive where do you live what does your house look like what are your children doing oh your children are bad aren't they you know the, all these little layers that come with respectability and all of that stuff right and so here comes j herman blake speaking for the longest time, like he spoke in a way that I thought was real country. And now I recognize that if you've listened to me for episodes, you recognize that I'm country. Put that, put a pin in that. Like, you know, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. But anyway, I just, I just saw him as being the way he spoke was country too country and unprofessional. I thought at the time for a college professor, but I was still, drawn to him. Why? Because there was this this air of authenticity about him. He said what he felt. He said what he meant. He was very caring, very open and sh- and shared um, and was kind and was not cruel, but was stern when it when the situation called for it. And so I learned a lot under him, um, had a lot of great experiences. I was a part of this this even having gone through the Carver program, I still stayed connected Um with Dr. Blake through, you know, he was the head of the African-American studies department. Um, actually, it wasn't a department. It was a program. Mm-hmm. And if you if you've had those conversations, there is a difference between a program and a department. A program can be eliminated. A, pro- a department is harder to get rid of. It's a part of the institution. Anyway, we had those conversations, too. Boom. Anyway. Um, but um. Yeah, so I learned a lot. We traveled. He spent a lot of money on us. Um, this small cohort of black kids, black and brown. I'll say this, it was actually black and brown kids. He spent a lot of money on us at uh, Iowa State, and I think he got in trouble for that. Um, but anyway, the time that he was there, for the longest time, I really thought that he was from the Sea Islands. Even though I had his books and his research right at the tip of my, like right at my fingertips. I could have seen that he was actually from New York. But 
he he just kept talking about South Carolina so much. And in fact, um, when he left there, which was my junior year, like he left, he retired, excuse me, my junior year. And um, he went to the Sea Islands um, to be a fellow there. And he just talked about, you know, going back and going home and stuff. And, and that's why I thought, I just really thought that he was from uh, the Sea Islands, but it turns out that his people were from the Sea Islands and that his mom and, and her people had, you know, migrated to New York City um, during the Great Migration, just like all black people, like many black people. But that, of course, as a, you know, he still had deep roots in um, in the Sea Islands in the South. So anyway, that's what his that was his connection there. And so. It's interesting because when he left, I was still very much all absorbed with blackness, but I was also learning about um, indigenous American, uh, first nation, not indigenous American, first nation cultures. Um, Because at that time I still thought that um, we had indigenous blood in our family, especially on my mom's side. But what I came to know is no, we don't. Um, but we certainly did live in and among uh, First Nations people, but we don't have um, First Nations blood and on my mom's side, for sure. Um, but anyway, so, but I, I still saw the value of learning about other cultures, specifically cultures of color, because I just do. There's just value in learning about other cultures, duh. Um, and it has nothing to do with not respecting your own culture. It has everything to do with understanding someone else's culture as a way to help appreciate your own, um, from my perspective. And so that was the kind of mind frame that I was moving into. And then he leaves and then they put a white man as the head of the African-American studies program, which on its face, just because you're white doesn't. I'm not going to have that conversation, but that that last year, because Dr. Blake had built up so much enthusiasm and energy around the work that we were doing, um, me and the other cohorts were doing in the, the program um, and in with other students and certainly in the community. J. Herman Blake is one of the reasons why I'm even in nonprofit work. Like I've done nothing but nonprofit work in the community since I left college, largely because Dr. Blake had us going and helping some community kids, um, tutoring them, mentoring them, bringing them on campus, because even though they lived right in and around our campus, they had never been to campus, never been invited to campus. Um, Now, mind you, mom and dad, they did community work too, community service and things like that, Um, missionary work and things like so being helpful in the community is not new to me, was not new to me at the time. It's just it held more weight when he put it when he put me out there in the community. And so it's just one of the reasons why I can't I honestly cannot see myself doing anything else but community work for the rest of my life. That's all I want to do. Impacting the community. Anyhow. So he leaves and there's this sea change when he leaves. And I don't even understand the circumstances of his leaving other than he didn't want to be there no more. And he wanted to go and be a a fellow uh, at Sea Islands uh, Institute. But um, yeah, so, you know, there's this new uh, director 
and things get weird. And I'm not knocking this this uh, man's intentions, talking about the guy that took his, uh, Dr. Blake's place. It's just the the climate, the temperature, everything changed, and I was ready to go at that point. And it could have been that, oh, here I am. I'm back talking about black stuff, talking about black culture with white people. And I didn't like that. I think that's really deep down what bothered me. I didn't like it. And again, I know we all know that you can be well-versed and, and not well-versed, but you can study someone else's culture and be an expert on it. But I wasn't studying somebody else's culture. I was studying my own culture. I want to learn black culture from black people. I don't want to learn it from people who are not black. End of story. I don't think I have to apologize for that. And so I think that's the thing that turned me off. And so I was ready to go, um, even though I probably could have stayed there longer and maybe got a double degree. And looking at my transcript, um, looking at my transcript, I probably should have had at least a, a minor um, in, in African-American studies. And shoot, maybe even um, at the time, the Iowa State called it um, American Indian Studies. Um, or was it Native American Studies? It might have been Native, Native American Studies. Anyway, um, I probably could have had a, a double minor in both of those things, honestly, because I took so many classes. Because I enjoyed the professors that I sat with. And going to Iowa State, of course, many of the professors were um, white presenting. If they had a tie to the either community, they were still white presenting. Um, many of them, not all, but many. And so... Um, yeah, I just, I was just ready to go. And so, you know, the culture changed when he left. For me, it felt like the the, the temperature got cooler um, and it wasn't as fun anymore to be there. And so I was ready to go. And so I did. I uh, graduated and moved on. And then I go and I do an internship. And I've shared this before. I do this internship in Syracuse at this community center, uh, Syracuse, New York. And I run into this person that's working at this community center and I tell him that where I graduated from and all of that. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, you know, J. Herman Blake. I said, what? You mean to tell me I moved all the way across the country just to run into you who I've never seen before talking about a professor that I admired greatly. And then the scandalous thing was this guy, I don't know what his angle was. He seemed like a little bit of a creep. And anyway, so we were talking. He was like, oh, I thought he died. And I was like, excuse me? And now, mind you, this was two years removed, having been removed from Dr. Blake uh, leaving my university. Um, I think he retired from there. Anyway, um, and so, you know, I start going through Facebook because at the time I swore Facebook was just for students at my university. But it turns out everybody at every university um, had a Facebook group and then they opened it up to high school students and then it went to hell from there. Anyway, um, but, um, not that it was great when it was just us cause we were foolish, but anyway, <clears throat> um, you know, I started checking the channels and all my, uh, old cohorts are like, they were like, no, he's not. He's still cool anyway. So, and then I just stopped checking for him. I just, I just did. I went on about my business doing my thing. You know, you know, the story about me, being in Syracuse, not loving it at all, and then coming to Baltimore, and then I've been here ever since. Um, but the, I guess the impact that Dr. Blake had on my life was so significant that some of the impact I'm only just now getting to, um, I'm, I'm processing now. At his retirement, 
Dr. Blake's, one of Dr. Blake's, I think, adopted children. I don't know how that worked. I don't know that he had any biological children. Or if he did, one of his children um, had recently transitioned. Um, and he, Dr. Blake, basically used his retirement. Now, this is told to me secondhand um, from a, one of my uh, friends from college who was there, who was a part of the cohort. But I don't know where the heck I was. I think I just didn't want... I know where I was. I was not there on purpose because I didn't want to say goodbye to Dr. Blake. So I didn't go to his retirement party. I found a way to be distracted and not be there. Anyway, so one of my um, friends in the cohort shared that Dr. Blake used that opportunity to um, basically debut. No, debut is the wrong word. Show present to his community, his felt, you know, the people who loved him, the child that he knew as a girl, but now was accepting as the man that his child always felt he was. Um, and it was, you could tell, you could tell that this was something, according to my friend, you could tell that this was something that he purposely did, number one, to show his son that he loved him and two just to show the world that this was this is a part of me this is my family do you know what I mean like it was important to him and I'm sitting back now at the time I was like okay cool I mean that's Dr. Blake Dr. Blake's gonna be who Dr. Blake is you know what I mean like you're not gonna try to shame him for nothing but looking back on it now I'm just like whoa whoa that was the early 2000s. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't even in the teens yet. And Dr. Blake is openly, he's openly sharing his loved one to these folks who you don't know their intention. Do you know what I mean? I'm super protective of my family. Some people, you could know me for years and not know that I have several siblings because I don't talk about my family. Because again, you gotta you gotta be close to me to really know my family. Because I don't know, I just I'm protective of my family. And so looking back on that, what a vulnerable and like stand-up dad thing to do. Do you know what I mean? Like you getting this going away party for all the accolades and you know, everybody's coming to see you and you turn the attention on your child. And not in a negative way. And from what uh, my friend told me that, you know, the, the child was, you know, their son was super into it. You know what I mean? Just kind of went with it. Um, I don't know if it was mortifying for them, but they were there. And so I don't know. I hope it was a wonderful moment for the two of them. But like I just to be to be his age, I'm just putting it out there to be his age even then. And to take those steps meant a lot to me. And I don't know what community you come from, but the black community, we've had a hard way to go when it in terms of accepting all of us, every aspect of us, because respectability po politics is a killer. It really is. And respect respectability politics has hijacked, in my opinion, has hi hijacked our religious practices. It's, it's hijacked our celebrations, our 
achievements in a lot of ways or what we should consider to be an achievement is just hijack those. That culture of respectability politics, it's got to go. But to look back and see a man who used that opportunity to not celebrate himself, but to celebrate his son, that's pretty great to me. Anyway, so getting back to J. Herman Blake um, and where he is today, you know, I'm just his influence on me today. So that he did that is one of the reasons that I'm being totally transparent for the longest time. I was a turf, but I didn't know I was a turf. I know I was a turf now and I'm not one now, but I thought that a person who transitioned from what they physically, the gender that they physically looked like to one that they felt like. I thought that that was just them being trans, but that they weren't male and that they weren't female, they were trans. Which what we know now is, what I know now is totally homophobic, totally transphobic, specifically transphobic. Um, And I think in some small way, Dr. Blake's debut of his son started me to thinking differently about my views on that, really confronting myself. Because again, I was this, I was an extreme person in college. And then when Dr. Blake left and some of the, the rose color started to fade from my experience in this community that I created for myself at Iowa State, I started to see things differently. Um, And it took me a minute, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be 100% transparent, it took me a minute. But I'm at a place now where I could say a lot of the behavior that I exhibited, a lot of the things that I did in college was toxic for so many different reasons. It was anti-woman. In a lot of ways, it was anti-blackness. It was a little hotepy too. Um, And yeah, it was very much kind of anti-black woman. I can't believe how anti-black woman I was thinking that I was a womanist. Do you know what I mean? Like I was very anti-black woman. And I don't know where that came from other than I was just trying to mimic what I thought a strong black woman was from my readings, from looking at other people, but I didn't understand it for myself. Um, And so just taking a step back from college, you know, and being removed and then being exposed to people in real life, not this fake create, not, not fake, but this uh, curated community that I had. Um, But in the real world, meeting people who black just like me, but did not have to run around with the black liberation flag. Do you know what I mean? Um, And then who were queer, who were trans and I didn't know it, not that I needed to know it, but you get what I'm saying. And then intentionally listening to trans voices um, through podcast, shout out to Marsha's Plate. Um, It's helped shape me in a lot of ways, helped And it's taken some time, man. It's taken some time, but I just look to people like Dr. J. Herman Blake who kind of helped me allow myself that freedom. Because even when I was creating this, curating this culture around me, there were were times where Dr. Blake would just be like, slow down. Just, Just say something, something simple like that, just slow down. 
take a breath. Because I always had this sense of urgency about me. I felt like I was always trying to make up for lost time. Like I didn't have any time to waste. And he just kept saying, slow down. You're going to be okay. And it's just like, I'm taking that advice through now as I'm learning and growing and maturing and kind of ex- re-examining my ways as a, as a way to be more supportive and helpful in the future and then just a better person, duh. Um, and thinking about the kids that I want to raise and how supportive, how to be supportive of them and having the conversations with my hubby and just talking about faith in a different way and understanding that the faith tradition that I was raised in has been we ain't doing it right a lot of us ain't doing it right and it's just is what it is and you come to terms with that how you feel and I understand a lot of black folks have turned away from Christianity and rightly so I know a lot of people of color have turned away from Christianity and we are to blame our communities are to blame for that because we put a lot on that religion that ain't there Um, And we made a lot of put a lot of systems in place that turn people away. And it's just something we got to come to terms with. But anyway, it's like sitting at his feet and seeing him grow and change in the way that he did and encourage growth and change has allowed me in many ways to grow and change on my own and to seek out new information and to be okay with people not agreeing with me and to be okay with being on an island, but being content on that island, knowing that. I'm walking the steps that I need to be walking. And so to Google him ahead of this, this episode, because again, he just came to my mind because I was thinking about South Carolina, how me and the hubby are going to South Carolina. And so I Google him because again, I'm thinking age, you know, health ain't always good. And then I find out that as recently as, as uh, maybe seven months ago, this dude was at some dedication ceremony um and and the the very uh uni- college that he was the provost for at University of California Santa Cruz has the the provost house is named after him now i think that's just awesome i think that happened in 2017 and you know he was quoted in some article last year like 6 well 8 9 months ago at this point um for saying something again, being in South Carolina, um, Georgia, in the Sea Islands, um, talking about preservation and things like that. So, that man is 84, probably 85 at this point, and still doing, doing the work. And that's what I want to do. I want to do the work. So, I, you know, God bless Dr. Herman J. Blake, uh, or J. Herman Blake. And I never did find out what that J stood for. Anyway, I know it's one of those uh, old Geechee customs where, it, ah, shoot, if I can remember, it's either Geechee or Haitian. I think it's actually Haitian. It's in a lot of black cultures, cultural traditions in the diaspora where um, it's like in order to trick a trickster god, you don't tell, you say, you call the child by their middle name. You don't actually ever call them by their given name, their first name. And so I don't know that we ever knew. And I don't know that we'll ever know what the J stands for. But, um, yep, J. Herman Blake, Dr. J. Herman Blake. I, I hope he's doing well. And I just honor him for the way he helped shape my life. And he probably didn't know a thing about it. I know he didn't, but I do. And that's what matters.
So yeah, I hope that wasn't too corny, but I just wanted to share that because, yep, Dr. Uh, Blake helped shape me um, or helped me shape myself into the person that I'm still becoming. Um, So yeah, shout out to him. Anyway, um, yeah, so I'm still doing the whole um, podcast and then YouTube video thing. So yeah, thank you for sticking around with me. And if you want to hear some different things, um, head to my YouTube channel um, to hear those like one-off stories. They're not so much podcasts so much as they are just little short little things that... um, come to my mind um and they're also accompanied with a cool little video background i I don't know if at some point i'll start interviewing people or i don't know what i'll do with those videos but they're they're there there's actually one that's up now that i will put um the link to and it's a story about someone that was in my life briefly um and it asks a big question too um and I'll just, I'll leave it there. Um, I know the story is not unique to me or the family that it actually happened to, but um, it's a question. It's a question that we need to at some point answer. So anyway, check, um, click that link and check that out. Um, thank you so much for listening to my podcast, though. Um, as you know, you can listen to this on any of the places where you listen to uh, to um, podcast. Uh, Radio Public, Pocket uh, Casts, you know, Google, Apple, um, all the places. I think the only place I'm not is Stitcher just yet. And hopefully that'll happen soon. But yeah, you can Spotify. I'm on Spotify. You can find me anywhere. Again, Bay Baltimore. Um, But you can always click the link in the show description, um, which will take you to the show page, which has a little button that you can click to leave me a message um, right there on the page itself. You don't have to download anything. Um, And while you're there, you can leave me a donation if you want to. Even 99 cents will be a helpful contribution. But as I always say, if that's not your thing, then just share an episode that you find interesting or that you think somebody in your friend group will find interesting. Because at the end of the day, that's how more people will know about this podcast because they are it, that somebody's sending it to them. So more, the more times you send it, the more ears will hear it, so on and so forth. All right. So once again, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to leave me a favorable rating um, on wherever you listen to me. Okay, and until next time.